All right, so let's finish up Anti-Oedipus here with the fourth chapter, Introduction to Schizoanalysis, which makes sense. Like, that's what they're leading up to the whole time. Uh, And to just jump right into it, they begin this by asking a funny question, uh, kind of chicken and egg thing. What comes first, the parent or the child? Because it would seem as though there would need to have been an initial person suffering from the Oedipus complex, but... If, you know, it existed in either the parent or the child first, then how could that have been? Because, of course, the child experiences the Oedipal complex or comes to internalize it because of their relationship with their parents, and the parents can only Oedipalize another another being, essentially. So this is it's just a funny way for them to reveal uh, kind of paralogical, um, kind of paralogical characteristic of the Oedipus complex or how it's understood. But Deleuze and Guattari are, you know, they're faithful to what they're what they're doing here and say that psychoanalysis, the Oedipal kind, actually does give an answer, and that is with the father. They give privilege to the father as being the founder or the kind of creator of this thing called the Oedipus complex in the child. But as we've been, or they've been alluding to the whole time, this characterization of a possible delirium or a possible malaise, that is the one produced by Oedipus, uh, is too restrictive in that it just considers the parameters of a nuclear family, notably that of the, the position of the father within that family. So it doesn't take into account that what they call the social field, so the all the other dynamics at play. And some of those that they'll come to present here would be class and race and and you know things like that. So they tell us that there are, for them, three primary things wrong with psychoanalysis, and they are as follows. Number one, it is wrong to attribute everything, all problems to, you know, the child, to say that, you know, the child is the one that has to be corrected in order to be normalized to fit into society, and that's what the psychoanalyst does. Um, and we'll go talk about that more later. Okay, for now, number two, uh, wrong to assume this idea called of familialism, or the idea of the family as being a thing of affiliation or alliance uh, among people that share a kind of biological affinity with one another. A very arbitrary designation, of course, because what can be said then of, of adoptive parents or other uh, family paradigms that don't fit that mold? And then third, and this is a little bit of a confusing one, uh, it's the idea that, or I'll just read what they say, and this is on 276. Uh, this is the point of view of the community which is disjunctive or takes account of the disjunctions in the cycle not only is generation second in relation to the cycle but transmission is second in relation to an information or a communication the genetic revolution occurred when it was discovered that strictly speaking there is no transmission of flows but a communication of a code or an axiomatic of a combinative apparatus informing the flows such is also the case for the social field. Its coding or its axiomatic first determine within it a communication of unconsciouses. This phenomenon of communication, which Freud touched on only marginally in his remarks on occultism, constitutes in fact the norm, and pushes into the background the problems of hereditary transmission that animated the Freudian controversy. Um, and then there's a footnote here where it says that it is also within this perspective of marginal phenomena that the problem, nevertheless fundamental, of the communication of unconsciousness was posed first by Spinoza and then by uh, Myers, James, and Bergson. 
So then to continue here, it appears that in the common social field, the first thing that the son represses or has to repress or tries to repress is the unconscious of the father and the mother. So what I think they're getting at there, because I have trouble, I feel like they aren't really clear on what that third problem is. Uh, it is that like the other two things, it really reduces the problem to disavow the possibility of the social field. Now, what they give us here is a little bit more complicated in that what they want to propose is that more than the social field being the product of a kind of prohibition, as, as Lacan might, might um, propose, or that, as they just said it here, that um, this type of community comes about through the repression of the mother or the unconsciousness of the mother and the father, uh, they want to say that in order to really grasp what is going on, we have to take into account all the desiring machines and all the kind of uh, just the machines that I guess operate in this world that do not abide by that very limiting structure. So all the communicative elements are just flows really for them that don't rely on basic uh, repressive tendencies. They do to some extent, and we'll get into that more, but they don't rely to an or correspond to an overarching, you know, Oedipal repression. So psychoanalysis is then a very, it's what they call a macrophysical phenomenon. It is what um, kind of places a tarp over everything and claims a kind of umbrella solution to all issues. Now for them, they think that that is, that is fascist. Now what they oppose this to is an idea of micro, uh, or kind of microphysical um, component which they attribute to schizoanalysis or the schizophrenic. So if we think back to the first chapter, the image of that that they draw is of the judge there walking through the woods. And if you, I assume no one would be listening to this fourth part without listening to the first one. Uh, but in case you haven't, uh, the image that they draw is of a judge who is supposedly suffering from a kind of psychosis. Uh, an image of him walking through the woods is a much more liberatory experience than this person sitting in the, the chair of the psychoanalyst for them, because there's a kind of explosion onto the scene, kind of explosion into the uh, domain of nature that disturbs the kind of totalizing narrative imposed upon the person suffering by the psychoanalyst. So where they say that psychoanalysis is fascist, they imply, or they don't, they don't imply, they, they suggest that schizoanalysis is liberatory. And then this will come to um, kind of subtend their analysis or their proposal of a kind of a revolutionary paradigm, but we'll get into that. So between these two perspectives, that of, of the psychoanalytic one and that of the schizoanalytic one, they see community for Deleuze and Guattari in two very different ways. So community can always be reduced to this uh, notion of lack or prohibition or repression for the psychoanalytic imaginary, whereas for the schizoanalytic one, it is a it is comprised of multiplicities, which is a pretty important term in the Deleuze Guattari um, uh, lexicon, because multiplicities implies a kind of breaching of the boundaries of uh, being, you know, to open up new possibilities for being, and these possibilities are always already in play, as they're implying here. In many ways, they're just saying the reality of the situation is that there is no single like identity, right? And it's wrong for psychoanalysis to try and fit people into a certain mold. So for them, what they're trying to do with schizoanalysis is kind of match 
what they are kind of of all community, of all being, of all interactions, and how these ultimately come down to these desiring machines, which are multiplicitous. And they do not ascribe by, you know, single, uh, single narrative or ascribe to. So the schizo, I, that is the schizophrenic kind of um, image, always pushes the socius to new and interesting places. Because for them, what the schizoanalysis or the schizoanalyst does is not just try to fix the person. They must also be in the service of changing, altering the social field itself. So it always breaches the limits set forth by any socius. So these limits, as was presented in the last chapter, uh, manifest themselves in different ways, where you had in the primitive uh, formulation, you know, you had the state as being a limit of that, which was breached, and then we entered into a despotic or barbarian uh, regime, which saw uh, the kind of free flows as cap of capitalism as its limit, which was breached, and then we entered that phase, and now we're in capitalism. And schizoanalysis can perhaps do the exact same thing for us, in that it'll breach the boundaries set forth by capitalism, the kind of axioms or asymptotes, if we were to use another uh, mathematical term, you know, asymptote being that line, the kind of imaginary line that uh, a, a parabola, or um, uh, not a parabola necessarily, but a, uh, God, whatever, a line on a curve will never breach. It'll just come infinitely close to it. So what the schizoanalysis proposes to do is breach that line and enter into a new phase. Now for them, that is the body without organs, or the body without organs marks the limit of any given socius in that it's a place that opposes all the desiring machines that comprise a given uh, paradigm. So this is why I think their uh, analysis is so prescient or so um, germane, is that they do not... um, they always posit that these desiring machines are active. They're always working. However, there are forces that are try to reduce these desiring machines. However, what they oppose desiring to fundamentally, desiring machines to fundamentally, is the body without organs, precisely because that is the zone where production does not occur. So any system sees its limit because all systems operate through these desiring machines. Every system sees its limit with the body without organs. However, there is a, a problem with this, or there's a risk. So the schizoanalysis, or schizoanalysis offers the possibility to break through the boundaries, to kind of enter into a new body without organs, which is then supplanted or kind of um, overrun then with new desiring machines that make comprise a new system. So for them, um, this wall that is presented, or this barrier this limit of any system might be breached, but it might also not be breached. So when you have a system that is accelerating to its conclusion, it might for them break that barrier, or it might for them kind of hit the barrier and then bounce back. And when it bounces back, it lands on other kind of compensatory re-territorializations as they call it, that are wholly oppressive. So they say this on 283, 
The major line ends at the body without organs, and there it either passes through the wall, opening into, onto the molecular elements where it becomes an actual fact what it was from the start, the schizophrenic process, the pure schizophrenic process of deterritorialization, or it strikes the wall, rebounds off it, and falls back into the most miserably arranged territorialities of the modern world, a simulacra of the preceding planes, getting caught up in the asylum aggregate of paranoia and schizophrenia as clinical entities in the artificial aggregates of societies established by perversion in the familiar aggregate of Oedipal neuroses. So when we have a system that risks breaching its own limits into something totally new, totally spectacular, totally awesome, then that can, that can I believe, induce a lot of anxiety. And so people and the system itself then tries to cling to whatever it can in order to feel territorialized, in order to feel comforted. So some of the examples, like the ones they give here, to just repeat, they say, uh, can fall back into the artificial aggregates of societies established by perversion in the familial aggregate of Oedipal neuroses, etc., etc. But some of these others might include, might fall back into a certain faith in the state, might fall back into a certain faith in religion, might fall back into a certain faith in um, uh, I don't know, biological determinism or racial determinism or anything like this, supposed truths of the world that give people a sense of comfort lest they, you know, enter into something that, they, that they're scared of. So this is, I think, you know, really, it's very relative, relative, relevant to today, especially the kinds of uh, populist movements we're seeing, you know, emerge across the, across the globe. Um, at least, you know, it's one possible explanation for that. A psychoanalyst would have another explanation for it, but still, they give us a, an interesting take on it, to say the least. So they kind of tease this, uh, you know, this side of schizoanalysis, but then move back into a discussion about sexuality to suggest that in this paradigm, in this one that has these molar, what they call molar aggregates, the kind of totalizing narratives, uh, molar aggregates placed back onto us, because it could be said we are now in the throes of a system relying on all these compensatory territorialities because we almost breached the limit. Maybe it was in the early 70s. We came close, but then we bounced right back. Um, so in this world, they want to say that it would be wrong to assume that either molar aggregates could take over micro aggregates or vice versa. In fact, they want to suggest these two are actually always already in play. So let's go back a little bit then. Let's think of the first setup that they give us, that of the connective synthesis, that we saw in the third chapter. So in this first paradigm, there are there is territorialization occurring. So a kind of territorialization of the land by, you know, any kind of nomadic people for any given, you know, reason or any kind of um, hunter-gatherer purpose, right? So there is a kind of molar narrative there and that molar narrative is the land essentially this kind of territorial land that sets the stage for what is possible now within that land there are all these micro uh these kind of desiring machines the the, the micro uh physical aspects at play so i use this example to illustrate that it would be wrong to say you know we have to oppose all molar machines or molar aggregates with all desiring machines or to even suggest that one overcoming the other is possible. They'll always both remain, but the point is that 
I think in, in reading this is that it's about maintaining an equilibrium between the two so that one does not, you know, not completely take it over because that's impossible, but kind of begin to overshadow it. So one example of this is pre actually present in psychoanalysis. So one of the psychoanalytic uh, um, dictums is that, you know, sexuality is repressed. Sexuality is something that society comes to, you know, really foreclose. And Foucault showed us probably six years, five or six years before this was released, that that wasn't the case. And in many ways, um, Deleuze and Guattari are really suggesting the same thing. But it's different in that they're, used, they're talking about it in terms of their own uh, nomenclature, that is, of desiring machines. So they suggest that sexuality is actually everywhere. So the examples that they give, and this is on 293, uh, the way a bureaucrat fondles his records, a judge administers justice, a businessman causes money to circulate, the way the bourgeoisie fucks the proletariat, and so on. And there's no need to resort to metaphors any more than for the libido to go, way, go by way of metamorphosis. Hitler got the fascists sexually aroused. Flags, nations, armies, banks get a lot of people aroused. So, you know, they're really just showing the extent to which sexuality isn't even sublimated in the way that it is suggested, but that all of these acts are very sexual in that desiring machines are always at play. And these desiring machines present a kind of sexual paradigm where there are these connections between all machines. One example being the child, child's mouth and the mother's nipple, or, you know, father's hands and the child's like cradled body in the, in the hands. Like these are machines all meeting up, always connecting. And by virtue of that, always being sexual. So it's wrong then to ascribe the idea of anthropomorphic sex, the idea of human sex as it as we imagine it, like always, of course, heterosexual monogamous sex, as being the only way for that to for sexuality to uh, manifest itself. So then here we get another distinction, where they say that sex has actually been, I guess, co-opted by the jackals of psychoanalysis or by the jackals of society that want it to be, you know, only a thing that happens between men and women. And by virtue of that is then only reduced to the act of, you know, penetration as, as reductive as that is. But they give us something different and I'll read it out here on 294. Marx says something even more mysterious, that the true difference is not the difference between the two sexes, but the difference between the human sex and the non-human sex. Then I have to jump down a little bit here. Uh, desiring machines are the non-human sex, the molecular machinic elements, their arrangements and their syntheses, without which there would be neither human sex specifically determined in the large aggregates, nor a human sexuality capable of investing these aggregates. In a few sentences, Marx, who is nonetheless so miserly and reticent where sexuality is concerned, exploded something that will fold Freud and all of psychoanalysis forever captive, the anthropomorphic representation of sex. So desiring machines set the stage for any possibility of the molar uh, ideas of sex to actually come through. So they oppose this idea of sex as it has been co-opted by psychoanalysis and Freud specifically to propose that sex is always, as I've already said, is always occurring in these syntheses. And that is what properly constitutes the idea of non-human sex. So it's not about animals versus humans, because even that, you know, animals fucking has been uh, co-opted by the psychoanalytic imaginary. But we've lost sight of that. And so the narrative around lack 
that is, you know, how men fear the possibility of lack because they fear castration. And women are always uh, feel subordinated to men because they lack a penis. When the sexual aggregate, that is the whole total molar aggregate of sex, takes on the, um, I guess, takes on the essence that it currently has, then these types of narratives around lack can have such a strong effect and can be internalized and then can be, um, can result in even more harm to which the Oedipus complex, to which the psychoanalysis claims to have the solution. But of course, we can't lose sight of the fact that they only really provide the solution to the problem that they caused. So these overarching narratives, like sexuality, uh, presents another issue for them, and that is the issue of representation. So if we think back to the third chapter, when they're discussing the role of the despot as a deterritorializing force, because they kind of rip up the land and then uh, partition it or dis distribute it in accordance with hierarchy or caste or class or anything like that, uh, they also mention the way that the despot introduces graphism as a kind of mode of control. So it's kind of platonic in that way. Uh, but what they are effectively saying is that when things are reduced to a kind of image form, which they don't appreciate so much, when things are reduced to an image form, they can be easily transposable or can be easily um, uh, extendable onto an entire social field, which can then come to represent a kind of truth of that field, which for them, you know, we have to get away from. So that is one of the other problems pre present within, within psychoanalysis because it considers for them representation above production where, you know, it's more interested in the kind of image forms, you know, the image of sexuality, the image of the family, the image of uh, suffering through Oedipus or anything like that, than it is about production and its relation to syntheses. So for them, what they're trying to do is get away from what they call myths or the kind of ideological forms versus real forms. So our, the schizoanalysis, the, at least their project, is to reveal these real forms, which comes down to desiring machines. And as they'll suggest in more detail later, that the point of schizoanalysis to analysis is, oh my Jesus, analysis is, I can't even say it. Analysis is to tune someone into their desiring machines. Christ. And this resonates, I think, really well for if anyone's familiar with the work of um, Lauren Berlant, at least Cruel Optimism, the idea there that these kind of mythic forms in Deleuze and Guattari are a kind of cruel optimism because they claim or kind of pretend to get us out of a situation to which they only push us further deeper into. So our kind of love of, well, I don't know, I can't remember any examples that Lauren Berlant gives, but our love of things that are supposed to, or we believe are going to get us out of a bad situation, but in fact just intensify that situation and make it worse. That's why for them, Deleuze and Guattari, capitalism is such an effective force at maintaining itself and maintaining the Oedipal complex because it quote-unquote delivers the goods. It makes people think they get the kinds of satisfactions that they actually want when in fact they're just mythical, kind of artificial forms of desiring production that are um, commodified and then sold to people. So they explain this at the bottom of 302. Why at the same time as it discovers the subjective essence of desire and labor, 
is capitalism continually re-alienating this essence, and without interruption, in a repressive machine that divides the essence in two, and maintains it divided, abstract layer on the one hand, abstract desire on the other. Political economy and psychoanalysis, political economy and libidinal economy. Here we are able to appreciate the full extent to which psychoanalysis belongs to capitalism. For as we have seen, capitalism indeed has at its limits, has as its limit the decoded flows of desiring production, but it never stopped repelling them by binding them in an axiomatic that takes the place of codes. Capitalism is inseparable from the movement of deterritorialization, but this movement is exercised through factitious and artificial re-territorializations. So whereas normally, in the case of the primitive or the despotic, there were, what they say, there were codes that could be breached and broken, capitalism represents axiomatics that they internalize or capitalism internalizes. So it's not as though the codes reside on the margins of society, as they did in previous forms, kind of metaphorical walls around that society that could be breached. With capitalism, what we see is this, these little walls being internalized within the system itself. So the kind of introduction of the panopticon, to some extent, might, you know, that idea could be, um, I think, transposed onto here, which makes capitalism that much more effective at exercising, at conjuring away the possibility of its demise. Because if the walls are internal, how do you breach them? So the family is one such force. And through this process of internalization, these things come to be naturalized, these, these territory, territories, these compensatory re-territorializations, like the family comes to be naturalized, and that idea is enforced through psychoanalysis, for instance. So in response to this, the schizophrenic imaginary has to be wary of any kind of fake possibilities all allotted by capitalism. It must be very prepared to um, identify the way that capitalism might pre present some false modes of deterritorialization. Because at its base, schizoanalysis tries to destroy. It must be in the service of seeing through the bullshit and then taking down exactly what is, you know, presenting problems for it. Or as they put it on 311, the task of schizoanalysis goes by way of destruction, a whole scouring of the unconscious, a complete curtage. So then we get or move into the various tasks of schizoanalysis. So its first task, they tell us, is to discover one's own desiring machines or to, to the person, reveal to them their desiring machines or make them apparent. And then the second positive task is to uh, change the very social field by pushing not just the individual to recognize their desiring machines, but to change the entire social field so that it's not burdened by the, you know, jackals of complete total narratives. So we have these two tasks of schizoanalysis in front of us now. Uh, but I kind of had to jump to present both of them. Now we'll get into them kind of specifically. So the first one being that it tunes one into the uh, their own desiring machines. They tell us that the body without organs is not something that is is the body without organs is kind of like a point to attain but it is not one that is necessarily achieved because it's about tuning one in oneself into your desiring machines not getting rid of them so rather the way that we should understand the body without organs as they tell us is by not being contrary to what they call organs partial objects so, 
you know, the various organs that comprise any thing or all the various syntheses that go on in a human being, both internally and externally. I think all your relations might come down to this as well. Um, the body without organs does not necessarily oppose that, but it does present a limit for it like any other system. So we then have to contrast the body without organs with the limit point that is often ascribed to the body, that is death. So for Deleuze and Guattari, as one might guess, for them, death is just another machine. It's just another thing that belongs to the whole gamut of machinery that operates on and within the human body. So when the psychoanalytic paradigm, or when Freud attributes it a kind of fetishistic status, that is through th uh, Thanatos, the idea of the death instinct or the death drive, what he's essentially doing is giving it a kind of transcendent character that it doesn't have. In fact, it's very much bound to the to the earth, the kind of monism, uh, as someone might be want to say. So it doesn't breach the limits that are already set forth. However, that didn't stop Freud from trying to do so. So this presented some problems. When you give attribute death a certain status that it doesn't hold, it presents uh, the opportunity for people to fear it. And when people fear it, that's when they, you know, then do really bad things. That's when they so easily fall into the trap of society or religion or anything like that. So this is their Nietzschean side coming out. Uh, when death is kind of taken out of the domain of exchange, kind of taken out, and this is Baudrillard as well, uh, taken out of the circulation of society, then it is something feared, and then it is something that is constantly attempted to be warded off. So then people are like, well, they tell me that death is a very scary thing, but it can be a very nice thing if I do X, Y, and Z things to keep it going. Like the Protestant work ethic, like beating oneself through repentance or anything like that. But then we'd add to this, or they add to this, that uh, it's not really a coincidence that Freud discovered the death instinct at World War One. what they call the kind of capitalist war par excellence, like the, the war of capital. And then kind of as an aside, they, they say that they equate us with uh, zombies. Like the myth of zombies is the most accurate myth of um, what, you know, what the situation we find ourselves in. So to go back to this first task of schizoanalysis, uh, they, they give us another image of what the schizoanalyst really looks like. For them, the schizoanalyst doesn't resemble a um, an interpreter, nor even a, a theater director, as they say, but instead resembles a mechanic, a micro-mechanic, as they say, because when we're dealing with all these little machines, it's about getting in there and seeing which machines are not, you know, firing, doing their thing right, and then getting them to do their thing right, even if their thing is unknown to the schizoanalyst, which is a an interesting, you know, proposal, because in relation to psychoanalysts, psycho analysis that wants to try and get a you know, totalizing narrative to explain all these symptoms, schizoanalysis proposes that these are very individualistic symptoms, and I don't mean individualistic in terms of like a subject, but individualistic in terms of all these little machines having, you know, their own prerogatives, their own duties that only they really know. So then the second task gets us into this idea of removing or challenging the entire social field, not just getting under the hood of the individual or the person, but getting under the hood of the entire domain of the social itself, which is for them the way through which we get to revolution. So for them, this schizoan uh, 
schizoanalytic paradigm is not in and of itself revolutionary. But they say that every revolutionary, true revolutionary potential passes through this phase. So every revolutionary is to some extent a schizo in that they're breaking boundaries, but not every schizophrenic or schizophrenic paradigm is revolutionary. And then if the lists weren't already, you know, burdensome enough, they give us three different, I believe it's three, maybe four actually, they give us several theses into schizoanalysis. I think it's three, might be four. Now we'll go, we'll go through them. Yeah, there are four, sorry. We'll go through them here. So the first thesis, every investment is social and in any case bears upon a socio-historical field. So what that is essentially saying is that, you know, this, the human that is under investigation and all the machines that comprise the human and the human machine itself is inseparable from the social field that constitutes it. So they've been giving us ideas about class so far, but, you know, there's no surprise then that we can discuss race or sexuality, gender in, in similar ways. Uh, and then we get our second thesis, which goes as follows. It's long, so I have to read it. Within the social investments, this is on 343. Within the social investments, we will distinguish the unconscious libidinal investment of group or desire and the pre-conscious investment of class or interest. The latter passes by way of the large social goals and concerns the organism and the collective organs, including the arranged vacuoles of lack. A class is defined by a regime of syntheses, a state of global connections, exclusive disjunctions and residual conjunctions that characterize the aggregate being considered. Membership in a class refers to the role in production and anti-production, to the place in the inscription to the portion that is due to the subjects. The pre-conscious class interest itself thus refers to the selections of flows, to the detachments of codes, to the subjective remains or revenues, and from this viewpoint it is indeed true that an aggregate comprises practically only a single class, that class which has an interest in a given regime. The other class can constitute itself only by a counter-investment that creates its own interest in terms of new social aims, new organs and means, a new possible state of social syntheses. So whence the necessity for the other class to be represented by a party apparatus that assigns these aims and means and affects a revolutionary break in the pre-conscious domain, the Leninist break, for example. In this domain of pre-conscious investments or of class or interest, it is therefore easy to distinguish what is reactionary or reformist or what is revolutionary. So they, they, they want to show that the, the way we discern between you know a possible revolutionary schizoanalytic paradigm is by putting it in contrast with these kind of overarching what they call reactionary or reformist uh, narratives that only seek to work within the system itself that says that no revolutionary potential is actually possible or they say it's possible but that it won't actually help um, and that what we have to do is you know work within the system that we have so for them it's about this this hypothesis or this thesis of schizoanalysis is to say that it always is on the revolutionary side and that we always must be in tune with the distinction so as to not fall in the trap of the reactionaries or reformists. So these reactionaries and reformists are the people for them that desire fascism. These are the people that internalize the system and that, you know, place the system higher on a pedestal than, you know, the revolutionary imaginary because the revolutionary narrative presents an alternative that is wholly alien to them 
and it totally outside of their comfort zone. So they would then prefer to fall back onto fascism and, and other forms like that. So then we get into the third thesis, and that is that, um, that schizoanalysis posits the primacy of the libidinal investments of the social field over the familial investment, both in point of fact and by statute, an indifferent stimulus at the beginning, an extrinsic result at the point of arrival. The relation to the non-familial is always primary, in the form of sexuality of the field and social production, and the non-human sex and desiring production, gigantism and dwarfism. So, suggesting that these libidinal investments are the things that precede the emergence of family, you know, the thing that the psychoanalysts think is the originary point for sexuality, to which they sit here saying, as I mentioned before, that sexuality is present everywhere. Sexuality is present right now, between my mouth machine and this, you know, mic machine that each does their job, and there is a sexual relation there in that connection. So then as another aside, I'm not a fan of doing asides, but if you've read this, you'd know they, they really, if you were to map a trajectory of their th thinking process, it would be all over the map, which I think they were doing on purpose, but whatever. Uh, they say that there's no, really no surprise that the psychoanalyst is relies so heavily on people being not financially autonomous, because it seems as though people who aren't financially autonomous uh, are people suffering the most, quote unquote, or the people that are you know, financially autonomous, need so many more sessions. And I heard, uh, I don't know if this is true, but like Marilyn Monroe was seeing a psychoanalyst at some point, and the psychoanalyst got to the, it got to the point where the psychoanalyst said, like, wanted her to live with him in his house so that he could, like, put her under constant, like, supervision, take her out of society totally in order to normalize her for society that she'll never return to because the psychoanalytic process doesn't have an endpoint because it doesn't change the social field, it's it's always already going to be, you know, keeping itself going. And any narrative that says the opposite is for them, you know, part of the Oedipal paradigm that is just trying to repress you or something. So then the fourth thesis goes as follows. This is uh, the distinction between two poles of social libidinal investment, the paranoiac re reactionary and fascistizing pole, and the schizoid revolutionary pole which is no surprise at this point. It's about recognizing the way that psychoanalysis is reactionary and very conservative, fascist, whereas the schizophrenic pole is emancipatory, presents a potential for revolution in a way that the other pole does not. So where is this realized? Where does this deterritorialization, this kind of schizophrenic potential occur? Well, for them in a few different places, actually. One of the ones they give, or two that they give, are art and science. They say on the bottom of 368, why this appeal to art and science in a world where scientists and technicians and even artists and science and art themselves work so closely with the established sovereignties, if only because of the structures of financing. Because art, as soon as it attains its own grandeur, its own genius, creates change of, chains of decoding and deterritorialization that serve as the foundation for desiring machines and make them function. And then take, for example, the Venetian school in painting, at the same time that Venice develops the most powerful commodity capitalism bordering an Erstat, that is a kind of like perfect state system, that grants it a large degree of autonomy, its painting apparently molds itself to a Byzantine code where even the colors and the lines are subordinated to a signifier that determines their hierarchy as a vertical order. 
But toward the middle of the 15th century, when the Venetian capitalism confronts the first signs of its decline, something breaks out in this painting. What would appear to be in another world opens up, another art, where the lines are deterritorialized, the colors are decoded, and now only refer to the relations they entertain among themselves and with one another. Sorry, I read that fast. <laughs> good, good luck following. I'm supposed to make this easier. Um, but art is, because of its potential like that, it is enslaved by the jackals of capitalism, right? It's commodified. It's appropriated. It's, you know, insert term here to kind of foreclose its liberatory potential. And this is all really a product of capitalism that has the power to do that, to reduce any kind of liberatory potential to a commodified, you know, consumable object. So in the, you know, after presenting this idea at the very end of the text, they say that, and th this is a really interesting moment, they kind of go after the people that will probably inevitably go after them. So they say that those who have read us this far will perhaps find many reasons for approaching us, for believing too much in the pure potentialities of art and even of science, for denying or minimizing the role of classes and class struggle, for militating in favor of an irrationalism of desire, for identifying the revolutionary with the schizo, for failing, for falling into familiar, all too familiar traps. This would be a bad reading, and we don't know which is better, a bad reading or no reading at all. And in all probability, there are far more serious reproaches to be made, which we haven't even thought of. As for those we have named, we hold in the first place that art and science have a revolutionary potential and nothing more, and that this potential appears all the more as one is less and less concerned with what art and science mean from the standpoint of a signifier or signifieds that are necessarily reserved for specialists. But the art and science cause increasingly decoded and deterritorialized flows to circulate in the socius, flows that are perceptible to everyone, which force the social, social axiomatic to grow even more complicated, to become more saturated, to the point where the scientist and the artist may be determined to rejoin an objective revolutionary situation in reaction against authoritarian designs of the state that is competent incompetent, and above all, castrating by nature, for the state imposes a specifically artistic Oedipus, a specifically scientific Oedipus. So, you know, saying that they want to uh, maintain or justify their faith in art and science because it does always point to limits present by any kind of uh, Oedipal state system that poses restrictions, because art and science just, onto, like, ontologically break boundaries and then to the other possible charge the one that they uh, someone might say that they don't consider class as closely as they should they say um, they say that fundamentally they are doing that in that their whole project is about revealing the way that capitalism enforces and perpetuates the system that they are they're working in and just because they didn't like have a whole chapter dedicated to class doesn't mean that that is not on their radar and then finally they make the distinction that we do not at all think that the revolutionary is schizophrenic or vice versa on the contrary we have consistently distinguished the schizophrenic as an entity from schizophrenia as a process now the schizophrenic as entity can only be defined in relation to the arrests the continuations in the void or the finalist illusions that repression imposes on the process itself this explains why we have only spoken of a schizoid pole in the libidinal investment of the social field, so as to avoid as much as possible the confusion of the schizophrenic process with the production of the schizophrenic. 
the schizophrenic process, the schizoid pole, is revolutionary in the very sense that the paranoiac method is reactionary and fascist. So the schizophrenic can't be, and this is where it gets really difficult, it can't really be represented. It doesn't have a face. And this, you know, this is them being faithful to their own projects in that they, when they're saying that they're opposing the idea of representation, they don't want the schizophrenic to be subject to that same violent act. They want instead it to remain enigmatic. So above all, what we are not looking for a way out when we say that schizoanalysis as such is strictly no political program to propose. If it did have one, it would be grotesque and disquieting at the same time. It does not take itself for a party nor even a group and does not claim to be speaking for the masses. So that's <laughs> that's it. There's a lot more, obviously, for those that have read it or look to read. You should definitely read this book because um, there's a lot I just kind of skipped a lot of the literary references and stuff that would have taken us too far afield and weren't you know totally relevant um when just presenting a kind of brief overview brief for four to almost four hours of talking on this this book uh three hours um but yeah i think i touched on a good chunk of things and for those that listened and you you know see things that are that i missed or things i got wrong definitely tell me uh, i'd like to hear about them i'm just happy to get through this it's massive monster of a book it's so dense like the length isn't what gets you it's just reading it it's like read a sentence a minute uh but yeah for those that listened peace out see